You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited for you to hear this week's conversation, which is with my colleague, Debbie Fermo. Debbie currently teaches upper school English with me at the Pennington School, but she was previously a professor at the United States Naval Academy, as well as a commander in the Navy. Debbie and I discuss the preconceptions she encounters from both students and colleagues regarding her military background, as well as the importance of fostering relationships with students and having difficult conversations around topics of kindness and equity. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider recommending the podcast to a friend, and please be sure to rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcast, which helps increase the visibility of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge. Feel free to also like us on Facebook or get in touch with us at welcometotheteacherslounge at gmail.com with any feedback or guest suggestions. With all that out of the way, here's my conversation with Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So to start things off, what I want to have you do is go back to the very first day of school. Um, By that, I mean your first day of teaching, however you define that. I realize it wasn't yesterday exactly, um, but I'm just curious about like what you can remember from that day and what stands out about like your first day of actually being a teacher or an educator. Okay. Um... Interesting question, because I think I come to teaching in a very roundabout way. And so the first time I ever stepped into a classroom, I was a young lieutenant in the military. I had just left my first aviation squadron. I was a helicopter pilot by trade. And someone somewhere thought I was qualified enough to teach young midshipmen at the United States Naval Academy Um, about leadership. And so I got off of being operational, you know, out at sea on a carrier doing missions and operations. And I landed myself in a classroom full of, I guess it was freshmen and also junior college students. And I think my first thought when I stepped into a classroom was that I am an absolute imposter And I had to keep reminding myself that no matter what, I knew a little more than they did. So I remember being um, really scared and woefully unprepared to start teaching. Right. Well, it's interesting that you use the term imposter because I think a thing that has come up a lot is this idea of like the imposter syndrome, right? Like this idea of like no matter how qualified you are for something, no matter how good you are at something, you will think of yourself as being like an imposter. You will think of yourself as being like unqualified and someone's going to, you know, be calling your bluff no matter how qualified you actually were, which it sounds like you actually were very qualified because how long had you been in the in the Navy for at that point? Well, at that point, I'd only been in about seven years, but I knew nothing about teaching. I just, you know, remembered all the teachers that I liked and were so fond of Um And that's pretty much all I knew. And so I was getting this curriculum that was already established. Um, So the actual nuts and bolts of the teaching wasn't that difficult, but it was just the how was I going to present myself as somebody who was only a few years older than these kids um, and have them take me seriously. 
Do you feel that they took you seriously? I think they did, but I think it, it's a little bit cheating because in the military, I just had the um, the fortune of you know being or outranking them by a significant amount. So they had to take me seriously in a way. Um, I find that in my current job, I don't have the benefit of that, and that's been a um, adjustment I think for me. Sure, and yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely talk about that. Right. What What was your actual rank? I was a lieutenant at the time, so that's the rank you get when you've been in for about seven years, and you keep that rank for about five years, and then you start moving on, you know, up through the ranks from there. Do you think even even though at the Naval Academy students were like at least had that appearance of respecting you and taking you seriously, do do you think that that was actually the case or did you ever like while they even while they were saying like whatever like yes ma'am or however they responded to you did were you worried at the time that internally they were saying like who is this person like why should I respect them or, or anything like that oh my gosh yeah well I mean back in the time that I was serving I mean it's been kind of a long time um there weren't many women and so most of my classes were mostly young male midshipmen um maybe one or two other young females uh, in the room, and which is its own sort of issue because um, females are definitely usually harder on other females. So, um, or I say should say young women. So yeah, so I had that added sort of, pro- you know, thing. They didn't, they didn't know how I was as a pilot. They didn't know how, um, how I performed out in the fleet. So they didn't really know anything about me other than the fact that I was a female naval officer. And so they were sort of grappling, I think, with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. It was an interesting way to sort of start my teaching career. What was that first year like um, in general? Oh, my gosh. It seems it was so feels like it's so long ago. I hardly remember. But um, I mean, I think I had the benefit of an already established curriculum. So I didn't have to work too hard to be all that creative. Um, I remember thinking so much that I wanted them to like me. Um well, and I'll probably say this a couple different times and in a couple different ways, but I definitely think teaching is all about making relationships with your students. And so yeah. I felt like that was maybe my my gift with them is that I had very much established a good relationship and a good rapport with all of them. So as the year went on, I think it got easier and easier. Um, That's st- interesting because you, you wouldn't think, you know, I, I am not, obviously I do not teach at any sort of military academy, nor <laughs> have I ever. I would imagine, nor will I ever. Um, but but you don't think of like the relationship aspect as being like central to like the dynamic that would exist at that kind of school. And again, I, I'm speaking, I think, for most people who don't actually know what goes on at those types of schools. But it's interesting that like even in a place that we would, the average person might think of as being very like, you know, sort of like cut and dry, like very, you know, militaristic right like not not in a bad way but that those relationships like that still form the foundation of like a good educational experience there right right well I think that's the great misnomer I mean I think people have a lot of misconceptions about the military but I feel like the military is successful because of the leaders that are you know that are in it and I think leadership's all about um the relationships you form right the 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 trust that occurs between the leaders and the followers and so Maybe that was a natural transition into the classroom, or maybe that made it easier for me to just understand sort of where my place was sort of when, yeah. I'm, when I'm in a classroom. Yeah, that makes sense. When did you realize that you wanted to be a teacher? Like, what was the first moment where you realized that this was something that you wanted to do and this was a, a lifestyle that you wanted to 
commit to for some extended period of time? Um, I think that was a process. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I went into my life or ever thought back and thought, you know, I want to be a teacher. That's what I want to be. But I do think that every time you see a kid's face and it lights up because they understand something or you become that person for, you know, a young person who is, you know, struggling with something, it just makes it all worth it. So Perhaps it's not so much about the subject matter that I teach in the classroom, but it's all about, the. again, I'm going to say the relationships that I have with these young kids. And I think that that's um, what fills me up as a teacher pretty much every day. And, and the more you do that, the more you realize how important it is that you're doing that. And so yeah. it makes you want to just keep going. Um, yeah, it just makes you want to keep going. Yeah. So what what was that? Was there a particular moment where you feel like that it kind of clicked when you said, oh, yeah, this is definitely something I want to do. I'm not sure there was ever that moment. I don't know if I ever had that aha moment. I think I, I think it was more of I didn't ever see myself doing anything else. So I couldn't think of anything. You know, I have a husband who was also active duty military, and he, you know, got out of the military and was looking at all the things there was to do in the big bad world. And, um, you know, as he would talk about all these different professions, none of them sort of struck you know stuck with me and so I was just thinking you know there's nothing I really want to do more than be participatory in the lives of young people so I'm not sure there was an exact moment but I think it like was a calling that sort of you know developed over time well it's just yeah I guess the reason why I ask is because it it doesn't I'm sure in some ways it is like you said a much more natural transition from being in the military being active duty to being to being in the classroom but I just think for again speaking for the average person and the, the, the way that the average person perceives, like, the military, like, it just doesn't seem like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the military, and then after that, I'm going to go, you know, into teaching. You'd be right? surprised, like, yeah. There, you'd be surprised. There's this, big, there's this program called um, Troops to Teachers, and so there are a lot of military people that find teaching their calling, and I think it's because they want to participate in making, you know, good citizens out of the young people, out of young people. But, you know, I, I actually go back – I have to go back and um, after I got out of active duty, I actually taught middle school math and English, which is weird, but I have a lot of math in my background. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself in the middle school that I actually felt like I was in the true war zone in middle (laughs) school. So, uh, you know, everyone would say, like, how'd you get from the military to middle school? I'm like, I don't know, but it definitely prepared me for all of this. Yeah. Middle school is kind of a crazy place. Yes, mm-hmm. I teach middle school during the summer, and it's a very particular type of middle school student that I that I teach. But um, I have a lot of respect for middle school and and elementary school um, teachers. Absolutely. Um, what were you like as a student? Oh my gosh, I was such a conscientious student. I um, was such a pleaser. Always been a pleaser. That's probably why I went into the military. Um, very driven, and so that might be my biggest. Um, issue maybe with teaching is that I have a hard time understanding or understanding students that are not like that. Um, yeah. You know, ones that can turn assignments in late or okay not to do them or just didn't do their homework because I just was not that type of student. Um, so yeah, I was a good student. I, uh, I loved school. Um, I went back to school to get my master's in liberal arts. It was a great, it, it was a fascinating sort of dichotomy to go to the Naval Academy, where it was very um, science heavy, and then go to a master's program in liberal arts, which happened to be right outside the walls of the Naval Academy. Um, so that was that was neat. But I just um, I love learning, and I wish I had time to go back and do even more of it now. 
I think that at least once a week ever ever since I started teaching. And I've I've also I've always been that kind of person too. But I, yeah, ever since I started teaching, I just think about like so many opportunities that I squandered or oh didn't gosh. take full advantage of. Yeah, youth is wasted on the young, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think how lucky these kids are to have the teachers that they do and, you know, get to talk about the things they get to talk about. And they just, you know, they're not quite there to understand how lucky they are. Yeah. Unfortunately. What what drove you to do so well in school? What Was it really just that natural love of learning? Was it just like the way that you were wired? Were there other things going on that you felt like really drove you to do as well as you did as a student? Um. Yeah, I, I so you know, a long sorted story like we all do. But um, I had, my parents were divorced when I was early, early on. I was seven when they got separated and divorced and my sister was four. So I was the consummate older sister, you know, making sure that she was always okay. And, yeah. um, you know, my mom worked really hard, but she barely had two pennies to rub together. And so I think it was always in my mind that if I was going to get anywhere or if I were to get anywhere in the world, I was going to have to work really hard for it. Um uh, either with, you know, through scholarship. I was a field hockey and lacrosse player, so it was either going to be through a sports scholarship or it was going to be a military institution, and it is pretty hard to get into one of them. And so I think that was always a driving factor, and I guess maybe I had this sort of inherent need to, to please and to make, I guess, them all proud. You know, my mom was always proud. She was always the one who, um, I mean, she, she's been there from the get-go for everything, and, you know, there's nothing I could possibly do that wouldn't make her, you know, proud but you know I my father sort of left after the divorce and so maybe there was this inherent sort of need to do well despite (laughs) despite him so I think that was always part of the the drive and determination that probably also makes it difficult to sympathize empathize whatever like intellectually put yourself in the same place as people like students who you know, aren't either don't want to do well or are wasting their opportunities, especially now teaching at a, at a private school, um, which there's a lot of privilege that comes with that and a lot of opportunity that comes with that. I connect with this at least. And I and I I've mentioned this before, like I have a lot of privilege just in where I come from and who I am. But in terms of like my educational opportunities, I just didn't have as as many as many of my students do. So when I see some of them squandering that, I'm like, if you only knew like how right. valuable this is or like what how much you're squandering this by not putting in as much effort or time or, you know, being as aware of that, um, it just makes me really frustrated sometimes. Do, do, do you feel that as well? Like in terms of like knowing what you had to sort of like the, the hurdles that you had and the stuff that you had to overcome like, do you feel like that frustration and, and do you ever like mention that to your students? Because I know I do sometimes and I'm always not sure of like what the balance is of, of making it clear and using myself as an example of like you you should be using this because there are people who don't have those opportunities. Right. But then, you know, I, you know, you're only as busy as you've ever been. You're only as challenged as you've ever been. And so I feel like these kids that are very privileged have burdens they have their own burdens. Yeah, that's um, true. Ones that are probably very hard for us to understand because we don't have a whole lot of empathy for it. Um, but sometimes I think those burdens are even heavier than some of the burdens because when you're when you need to be scrappy, you can sort of dig deep and be scrappy, and uh, you have no other choice, right? I mean, yeah, you, you don't have any other choice. I mean, there were things that I wasn't. I, my mom couldn't buy for us. I have this 
my favorite memory with my mom was um, my sister and I wanted these. We'd go to church on Christmas Eve, and we wanted these um, Forenza jackets from the Limited. I mean, I can't believe the Limited's still around, but these these long <laughs> jackets, coats, you know, to wear over our Christmas dresses. Yeah. And my mom said, there is absolutely no way I can afford those coats. And her boss gave her her Christmas bonus on Christmas Eve morning, and she was late getting home from work on Christmas Eve because she always worked on Christmas Eve. And um, she was late, even later getting home. We were almost late for church. And she walked in that back door with two Ferenja jackets because she spent her entire bonus check on them for us. Wow. And I was, and I think back to it, I think if anyone asked me what my most prized possession, material possession was, I would say it was those jackets because somebody had to work really hard and they sacrificed a lot for them. Yeah. And I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a gift. I mean, I think everything that you go through and every challenge that you have just makes you this like awesome person <laughs> like yeah. just gives you so much more to you know rest on and I feel like when kids don't have that that it makes them less resilient and less empathetic and so I almost I almost think they struggle more um, and I try to remember that I mean I, I, I do try to remember that when you know people are complaining about things they shouldn't complain about and complaining in front of kids where they should not be you know who they right. sh- whom they should not be complaining in front of um, so I try to be mindful of that um, I do. I try to be mindful of that. And there's this great new country song out. I can't even remember who sings it, but it, it, you know, that old adage, you know, youth is wasted on the young. And he's like, if you were wise in your youth, then you wouldn't have any fun. So right. um, it would just, it, the world works the way it should, I guess. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, like we are all just fighting for our lives, like in different ways. <laughs> totally, right. And totally. we're all just fighting our own ball- battles. And it, it's easy to say this is, you know, easier or harder to deal with than this other thing and I, and I think there's something true like there are just some some things that are objectively speaking like more difficult to deal with and, and affect you in negative ways more so than other things right. but yeah it and it also it's just not a sustainable way to look at at privilege and look at you know what these kids are going through if you teach at a private school because it just drives you crazy and it makes you resentful in a way that you just shouldn't be resentful right right absolutely yeah. So I'm curious what you think about the ways in which we are failing our students. And I mean that both in terms of how we as individual teachers, like in individual classrooms, can fail our students and what that looks like. And then just thinking also about the broader educational system or the systems that are in place in terms of how we assess students or how we teach students that don't really always serve our students as, as well as they should. And I realize that's a very large question to answer. Mm, that is a large question to answer. Well, personally, oh, I go home every night and feel like I'm failing my students somehow. I just, um, I feel like I've become a better teacher since I've been a mother. And I think maybe I'm more perceptive of the feelings of my students or their attitudes or their behavior or just their demeanor, you know, on any particular day. And I, I take them home with me. I mean, I go home at night and I think, gosh, and, and I don't maybe um, notice it at the moment, but then in the evening I'll say something was off with, with so-and-so today or I wonder why, you know, this person wasn't, you know, being or acting the way they normally do. And then I think, gosh, I should have asked them about it. And, and then again, I go back to life, it seems, has become so much more about all the other stuff and not really about the education because all the other stuff is so big, it kind of gets in the way, I, I feel like. And so... What is some of that other stuff? I don't know. I just think what they have to, you know, what they have to deal with on the outside. I mean, I feel like family dynamics are difficult. I don't know if they're any more difficult than they've ever been, but they just, or maybe I'm more aware of them. Um, 
just the challenges. I mean, I think technology is its own beast, and I think my age uh, makes it so that I'm not aware of how challenging technology can make things. Um, so I feel like that's you know an outside burden that they have to deal with all the time. I mean, they're you know kids put their phones in their backpack for the 55 minutes that we're in class, um, or not put their phones in the backpack for the 55 minutes we're in class. Right. But um, you know, in in that 55 minutes, you know. 12, you know, 12 to 25 people have tried to contact them. And so there's just never, there's never a moment to sort of absorb what you're hearing or what you're learning. They don't walk out of the class and say, wow, that was just a really awesome lesson on Life of Pi. The first thing they do is take their phone out and see, you know, what they've missed in the last, you know, 45, 55 minutes. Yeah, play catch up. Playing catch up. And then they're just never fully present, right? I mean, Every time something dings, it's like, what am I missing instead of, you know, what am I gaining or what am I getting right now? Um, yeah. And so I feel like, you know, so I feel like that's a challenge uh, with education these days. I feel like maybe the way we reward everybody sort of the same, we're very hesitant to give out awards that make students, you know, stand out more than other students. Um, and I think there's value in in having to work hard for something and there's value in failure. Um, so yeah, I mean- It I, encourages resilience, right? It encourages resilience. I mean, people need, especially at a private school setting where we're so afraid to allow any of them to fail. Um, we, we put all these things in place so that these, you know, these kids have soft places to fall everywhere. And I feel like sometimes, you know, falling down is a good thing, right? You gotta figure out yeah. your way to get your, you know, self back up and brush off, you know? Brush, brush it off and move on. So, yeah, so it's just, I mean, I think it's just the way the way, way in which the world is changing, right? And then I think yeah. this generation of students is just, I mean, for everything we say, you know, negative about them with all the technology and they've, you know, they've never been without it. Um, they're so accepting and so open and so um, they just are forward thinking. And I don't know. I, I, so I think maybe the technology makes them that. And I think that's a gift. Yeah. that's a gift too. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've I've always I think just being of being a part of a generation that definitely has experienced a lot of that same type of scrutiny, um, just in terms of like you know what it means to like be have in, have technology play such an integral role in your life. Um, just this idea of like entitlement and this idea of like the me generation. Um, like I I definitely find myself empathizing like with. Or just looking a little harder at like that perception of of kids in this generation, right? Because I, I I do think that I, I think they're all, I also think that they're accepting in ways that even my generation, which is not that far removed from them, was not like when I was in high school, um, and same with the generations that came before me. And it's easy as teachers, you know, we we see the ways in which they are not accepting. We see the moments when they're unkind. We see the moments when they're being judgmental. And it's easy to focus on that, just like it's easy to focus on any negative aspects. But then I have to zoom out and say, oh, no, they're actually they're pretty accepting of things that I was not accepting of or they're conscious of things that I was not conscious of. And it makes me nervous because I do feel like maybe a lot of times that you were not accepting of things or conscious of something because there wasn't enough of a disconnect between you and your parents because yeah. there wasn't anything to disconnect you. And I feel like this generation's a little more disconnected. You know, they're, they're more apt to sort of look something up online and hear what, you know, someone else has to say and not take their parents' word for it. So, and sometimes that's, <laughs> right. that's liberating in a way, right? So they have their own, they've, you know, formulated their own opinions about things. But yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, but they are. They're 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 a really unique generation of kids, and uh, it'll be so interesting to see sort of what they grow up to be. And that is not to say I I feel like well, I mean to go back to your question that you just asked. I feel like what's really missing in school and what's absolutely necessary is. Um, some kind of character development, um, some kind of discussion or conversation about morality. I mean, to talk of a venue in which to talk about the tough stuff, you know, the really hard stuff. I mean, I find these kids get in trouble and they get, you know, in, you know, in trouble. They whatever the you know whatever the punishment is, whatever whatever the remediation is. But no one ever talks to them about the underlying reason for the trouble. You know, like what's going on at home, or how can I help you through it, or what does it yeah. mean? What does it mean to be honorable? What does it mean to be a person of integrity? You know, when you plagiarize on a paper, I think there's, you know, why why did you do that? What's the under, you know, and and have you learned, and will you not do it again? You know, so I think those conversations are really important to have um, today, and I don't know if we're, I, we're having enough of them. Yeah, well, and it's important to have to actually make them conversations like when you're calling a student out on something they did in the moment that was just wrong um for some reason like it's i know i will and i will sometimes say like you know why that was wrong right and then they'll say yeah and then afterward i'm like oh i wonder if they actually realize why that was wrong or if they really realize like why it was a, a big deal as opposed to just like a momentary like you know screw up or something like that right because some of them don't. So some of them do, right? Like some of them do just know better and they have to know better. Right. But there are some moments where it's like, no, I could have made that into a conversation, like an actual, you know, teachable moment. Um, but it's very easy. I know for me, I, I can be very quick, quick tempered when it comes to like just dealing with what I refer to as just like typical teenage nonsense. Right. right. Um, and it's easy to just like brush it off and say, OK, I, I addressed it. I called them out. I made them feel, you know, a sense of like remorse for it. And now we're now we're done. But there is something to be said for just making it more of a conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important. And I think you and I in the humanities profession, I mean, it's incumbent upon us to have those conversations and to use the literature that we teach and, you know, yeah. in, in the classroom to, as a as a way in which to sort of open that conversation up. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with that. But I also think that it's important that these conversations happen in other classes as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, because I think I have heard actually from other people who teach in other classes like in the sciences or math or, or, or whatever that they just don't feel as much of a need to have these conversations because it doesn't directly apply to what they're doing in the classroom or they kind of realize that that's like what the humanities is for and I don't think it comes from a place of laziness it might sometimes I think it also just comes from a place of like I don't know how to have these conversations or I don't right. feel the need to have these conversations because right. it's not like again directly relevant to what I'm doing in the classroom but I mean it's like if you have like you know if you have two parents and one you're you know one of them is giving you you know instruction on one thing and then the other just isn't addressing it right like it's it's more valuable to get it from both from both sides Absolutely. from both you know so it's like that with you know these kids and then that in that sense have six parents and if only two of them or one of them is having these conversations they're just it's just not being reinforced in the ways that it that it should be Absolutely yeah it's and I think it's absolutely necessary and today just to make sure that everybody in their lives are sort of on the same page and having those conversations yeah wherever they appear right I mean I right now I'm the uh, my oldest daughter is going into eighth grade she just finished seventh grade and I feel like I'm in like parenting on overdrive because something presents itself daily where 
I'm having to figure out a way in which to have the conversation and then just make sure my husband's having the same conversation and we're coming, right. coming at her from all the different angles. Right. Yeah. They are so on the same page. They're on the same page. Yeah. And, and funny enough, we have always been on the same page. We kind of come from the same place, um, you know, served. We flew the same aircraft and then um, just served with the same people. And so we've had a very similar background. So we've never, ever diverged. But now it's it's getting interesting. Like some of the, some of the parental things that are appearing in our lives, we're, we're diverging a little bit more than we, we right. have before. So it's interesting. You're entering the teenage years. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of that character development and that morality, I know something that you're really passionate about uh, is just the, this idea of, of gender, right? And, and yes. encouraging, yes. I don't even know how, I mean, it's, it's such a big thing, but just, I'm curious about what your experiences have been as a teacher, but I know that even outside of, of what you're interested in as a teacher, like your, your focus on that is really informed by your own experiences as a woman, as a woman in the military, as a woman in the military and education. And I'm, I guess I'm just curious about, yeah, your experiences with that and, and how that's formed what you do in the classroom and the type of conversations that you're having. Yeah, you know, this was a really um, year of growth for me, I think, because um, as as I came to Pennington, I was exposed to some different opportunities to go to different conferences and things. And it was really the first time I've ever had a chance to think about how my experience created sort of my view on things. Um, I mean, just as a little background, I was um, one of two women in a squadron, um, in, my, in my aviation squadron. There were no enlisted women. There were no maintenance women that so there were only two pilots, um, and the squadron was about 350 strong. So, um, it, you know, we were definitely the minority, and uh, we—it was just my experience, right? It's just the way I moved about my world then, um, and so I didn't notice anything wrong with anything that was happening until years later, when you know some of the things that did happen, and maybe it's you know part of the Me Too movements, you know, allowed me a little bit of time to reflect on it. But just the things that people would say and just the way people, you know, viewed me or, or the things that would happen, I realized that um, it, was a, it was a big factor. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, we, f- we flew in Egypt and um, when we flew there, the Egyptians wanted to fly in our aircraft. And we actually, you know, we only had two aircraft that landed in Egypt at the time. And, you know, they would not get in the aircraft because I was one of the pilots. Um, and so, right. you know, those kind of things where, you know, my seat, my commanding officer sort of smoothed that out. And he said, you know, you either come with us or you don't. Um, yeah. So I think that just it was the way things were. I mean, you just moved through your day and never really thought about it. And now it's sort of it's an issue. And now we think about the way we talk and the language we use. And um, I think it's still very present. I think it's very much um true that women are not in a place of privilege. I, I notice that in the classroom all the time. I notice that, you know, in a classroom where it's mostly men and very few women, the women don't, don't talk. Um, I was very lucky to teach a war literature class last semester, and um, it was an interesting way to present the material, but to present it from my perspective, vice the perspective I think that most of the young men in the room have experienced war or war gaming, as it would be. Um, so, and I think it's very incumbent upon me to bring that topic up in every way that I can. So in the war literature class, I'm very glad that I had the street credibility having served. But um, I do that in my regular English classes as well when short stories present themselves right. with strong women characters and things. I think it's really um, important that we stop and talk about things. I had a um, now senior student last year who said, 
something that was pretty funny. He said, um, I just don't know why it's such a big deal now. He said, you know, five years ago, you women were totally fine. And now all of a sudden, it's a big deal. (laughs) And so then I find it's, you know, our job to sort of stop the conversation and sort of and talk about that, whether the lesson for the day goes by the wayside. Um, We need to be talking about those things. I also find that maybe in a smaller setting or a private school setting, um, it's still very uh, male dominated. Usually a lot of the positions of power are held by men. And I think the students see that. And I think that reflects in many different things. And so to be a female in the classroom or, you know, a woman teacher in the classroom, I think there's, you know, kind of an inherent struggle there, which is interesting in and of itself since women by and large, you know, make up the majority of teachers. So I haven't quite figured out that dynamic yet. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone has. I think even the schools and the academic institutions that are have that level of buy-in of, you know, reinforcing that idea of equality, of gender equality, um, it doesn't always get sent, you know, like at every single level. And the, the kids do internalize what, what they're, the messages are being sent by who's in power, by who is the most respected or revered by the students, by the male students. And it's hard to untangle that. And a lot of that is... I have found that students struggle to accept the idea that they aren't in control. I think people actually in general struggle to accept the idea that they're not in control of like how they perceive things and how they right. respond to things. So to try to get them to even like say or acknowledge that there's a problem, you you get a lot of pushback. Right. From you the really students. do, especially at their age, right? I mean, it's they're not in yeah. touch with, you know, the social biases that they've been conditioned to feel and think, you know, for the entirety of their young lives. So Um, Yeah, yeah, and when you push them on some of those subjects, they get a little testy, I have noticed. How do you see that manifested in the classroom, just like the dynamics of the classroom? Well, so I do know, um, I I have taught a gender and leadership class at the Naval Academy, and so I do know that we've sort of uncovered reasons why women, you know, girl students are at, you know, when they're at their best and when men are at their best. And um, I find that classrooms that are more of a 50-50 split do better because I, um, especially... Uh, For women, if you have very few women, you know, one or two in a classroom full of, you know, young guys, um, the women are very hesitant to say say something. Um, So, yeah, so I feel like it presents itself that way. I mean, in my war class, we only had three young ladies and then the rest of the class, you know, were young men. And so that was a little challenging. They didn't do much talking. And I do. I I mean, I, I go back to how important it is for the institution to make sure it's putting women, all actually, all sort of minorities in positions of power so that students go into, you know, they go into those classrooms believing that their, their teacher has power for whichever, you know, for whatever reason. Um, I, you know, I do feel that sometimes, you know, young boys have a tendency not to respect women teachers as much as they respect their male teachers. And so that's been... That's been a little bit of a struggle, which I did not have that struggle where I was before because I had the privilege of rank, like I mentioned before. So um, you had the uniform. I had the uniform and I had the rank. So that just, you know, the, the, the respect just came along with that. So it's been an interesting transition. Have you ever considered just coming in with with the uniform I, I yeah I have or I've considered um, making them drop and do some push-ups or trying to you yeah. know, out butterfly kick them and see if right, like, that right. may, might earn me a little more <laughs> respect but look um, sometimes you have to think out of the box when you're in the classroom exactly exactly yeah I think that's I swear that's the reason why I got a job 
at a lower income public school because the principal asked me how I was going to deal with disciplinary issues. And I said, push-ups, are they out of the question? And he was like, you yeah, are yeah. hired. <laughs> yeah, I never made them do push-ups in the classroom, but I think he liked the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, so. music to his ears. Yes. So how do we, yeah, I, I guess I'm curious. I'm always having these conversations with my kids or trying to have these conversations with my kids. And as a, as a man, as, as someone who was a teenage boy not terribly long ago, I I really think about like my trajectory in terms of becoming aware of like the importance of having these conversations and the importance of recognizing like those that those biases that that exist within us. Um, but I I have a hard time translating that into like what is the right way to tackle these issues in the classroom and and out of the classroom just in our interactions with students at all in all levels. Um, but I guess I'm curious like what like, what do you think is like the key to making some sort of headway in these conversations and i know you're you're in the middle of raising a a young man as well who i know is a little bit younger than than your students but i'm sure that's still something that's kind of on your on your mind right right i mean i i'm not sure if i have the answer i do think that you know being in the humanities profession we do have the ability to pick stories and poems and you know and novels that um that address those issues because it allows us sort of a, a way in to those conversations, but I, what I have found works every time is sort of giving um, the young men who are in a place of privilege tasking, and I and I kind of pointed out um, by telling them that they have a lot of power uh, to be an advocate for those people who are less privileged, and I think it's really important that we define what privilege means. Yeah. Um, that it's not about money; it's just not about what we what we kind of think it is, but. Um, to maybe get under the conversation, you know, in the conversation of what is privilege, what does that mean? And then say, you know, when somebody who is not as privileged, privileged tries to advocate for themselves, they Mm -hmm. fall into the stereotypes that are already set for them, or people perceive that they're, you know, falling into those same stereotypes. But if somebody of privilege then, you know, advocates for that person, um, people listen, right, because they are in a place of privilege. And I I think if you point it out in those very, you know, simple terms and give them a tasking, um, you know, uh, something that's sort of tangible, I think that really works. You know, I've said to, and I do, like I said, when I go into a classroom, especially a classroom full of young men, I do feel like it is my responsibility to have these conversations just because of, like, the unique background that I have. And... um, I always say to them, I said, there, it should never be acceptable to hear one of your, you know, one of your girlfriends to be degraded, yeah. you know, by another, you know, you have to stand up for her because she cannot stand up for herself, you know, and then they say, well, why can't she stand up for herself? And I said, what would happen if she did? You know, what would be the conversation then? Yeah, well, and I, and I think it's also important to be, for me, I think the best way for, for these kids to internalize some of these things that we're talking about is for them to hear it from as many different people and, and teachers as as possible and it's hard but I think we need to, th- to keep in mind what the stakes are and it's not even just about I get frustrated when I hear all of these conversations about like you know the fact that our boys are, are broken in some ways and we need to have these conversations because we need to take care of our boys where it's like well we, we need to take care of everyone and the fact of the matter is that a classroom full of healthy boys is a better classroom for everyone involved. Like, it's not just about making sure that they're good people. It's about making sure that everyone feels, you know, that they have an equal voice in the classroom or that they can say things without being judged, that we can have these conversations without 
you know, this this level of privilege getting in the way. So I think we just need to like have that collective buy into having these conversations and continue to have them in the most healthy, productive way as possible. Right. And I think it's so interesting that you say that because, you know, it's those classes that don't feel like they have an opportunity to have those conversations where most of the stereotype occurs. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, age old adage or age old sort of thought process that women or young girls are not as good in math and sciences, you know, as they are the, you know, the humanities. So I find that interesting because I think in those classes, you have the opportunity to have those conversations even more. Right. Um, I always tease my students, you know, when I put them to do group work, I always say, you know, don't pick one of the girls just because you want her to do all the work, right? right? Because girls, young girls are pleasers, right? And they're they're at group work, they kind of take charge and they make sure it gets done. And so I use every sort of opportunity to sort of point out those stereotypes and they always call me on it. But at this point, I don't really mind that they're calling me on it. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I totally, I absolutely agree with you. Although I do find that boys are in a very precarious spot. Yes. I mean, we're making, you know, we're making such good strides with like girl empowerment and, um, you know, there's such a good movement there and there's such advocacy for young girls to become who they want to become. But I think it's confusing as to where young boys fit in now, right? Yeah. We want them to be, we want them to be strong and we have to figure out sort of what our new definition of that really is before we can demand that of them. Um, you know, we want boys to, you know, be good athletes and not really cry and be tough. But then at the same time, we want them to, you know, help with the child child rearing and, you know, and cry when it's appropriate. And so right. there's some really confusing mixed messages, I think. And I think yeah. we as a collective school, you know, collective educational, you know, education people need to decide what that is and sort of what message do we want to um, to start espousing. Yeah, totally. I'd love to talk a little bit about your switch from the military classroom to the normal, like, civilian classroom a little bit. Right. Um, I can imagine there's probably an interesting perception that you deal with in terms of, like, what people expect you to focus on and, like, what the stereotype is of, of folks in the military. And, yeah, I would just love to hear about what, what your experience has been like in, in that regard. Um. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I find I feel like this walking contradiction because I think that people expect me to be a certain way, and I'm I, I do feel like I'm completely the opposite. Um, I think, you know, militarily I became sort of this this one way, and then I will say that I do believe that being becoming a mother has sort of you know softened that a little bit. Sure. And so I think there's the you know preconceived notion, and I think the word's always out. Like, did you know she was you know she was in the military before? And I think they all expect that I'm going to be really tough or very strict or very conservative in my you know in my thought process, which is the great misnomer. I think everyone believes that any everyone in the you know military are conservative in some way or another, yeah. which is absolutely not true. Um, but um, and I just I feel like when I get in the classroom that um, like I, I I've said this a number of times um, today, but I think teaching is all about the relationships you build. Yeah. And um, I think where people see me coming from, I think that inhibits their um, their idea that I could actually build a relationship with them, but then um, are surprised, hopefully pleasantly surprised, yeah. that I am sort of on And that's all leadership, too. I mean, to be a good leader means that you just are in touch with your people. Right. Um, and so I guess maybe I think teaching is just be, is good leadership, really. Yeah. It's 
sort of nabbing which student isn't quite right on any, you know, on any given day, you know, noticing when one is just not performing as well as they used to, you know, that, that they, they normally do. Um, and I'll just come, I mean, I, I come right out and say, like, what's wrong with you today? Or yeah. why do you look like that? <laughs> right. Or what's going on? You know, and I sort of call them out. And I think, you know, I think they feel cared for. Yeah, well, you're you're very good at sensing that. I've I've definitely experienced that when I come in with my heavy size or my slouched <laughs> well, shoulders. You can definitely pick up on that kind well, of stuff. Thank so. you. So I do feel like the military classroom sort of prepared me for every classroom. Um, you know, yeah. it's funny. I find um, not so much with the kids. I mean, with the kids, they just sort of you know, if you care for them, they just you know, they just take you at face value and they don't really care. Um, especially right. this generation, right? They're, they're becoming more sort of progressive and more forward thinking. And so they don't really care sort of what you look like or what you bring to the table. They just care that you care, you know, and that there's, you know, there's a yeah. connection between, you know, you two, you know, the two of you in the classroom. Um, I find that it's my colleagues that um, have this, you know, it's less about who I am as a person and more about the fact that I am military, right? So, um, and, yeah. and, and actually, to be honest with you, I don't I can't even make the distinction, you know, I, when things, you know, when everyone's not doing something in the same way, I'm like, why do we not have a policy on that? And I, I wonder if people think, oh, of course, she needs a policy. She's a military girl or whether they think, oh, well, you're Debbie and you actually do better having policy. So, yeah, totally. so it's, I think it's I feel more um, put in that sort of military box by my colleagues than I do my students. Yeah, and that's frustrating because, or I would imagine it's frustrating because it's sort of reductive in some aspects. It's pretty much them saying, oh, she thinks this way or she acts this way because she was in the military. So obviously that made her into this kind of person. When in reality, that's just, you kind of stop and think, no, it's that's just because I'm I'm Debbie. Like, that's just who I right, am. Right. Like, it's not because of this one thing. Like, that's just the person that I am. And I, I think this way or I care about this thing because it's just, that's what my priorities or my values are. Um, and I, I encounter that in some aspects, just being a young person. Like, I'm, I tend to be one of the youngest people in the room, no matter where I am, apart from my students, obviously. But when I'm in a room with other adults in education, I tend to be the youngest person. And I definitely find, like, some things I talk about or some things, like, I'm passionate about, I definitely ha- get a lot of comments about, like, oh, well, you just, you know, that's because you're young. Right. Or give it time. You won't care about that anymore. And there might be truth to some of that. I'm probably going to be a very different person in five or 10 years and obviously 20 years than I am now. But I also want to say, well, could that just be who I am? And could it just be that I'm good at this or I care right. about this because it's it's part of my values? And it just it's just frustrating to have like your identity kind of reduced to like this one single factor or variable. Um, I get frustrated by that right. at least. Maybe, maybe too much, but I, I, I find that to be very... Um, discouraging sometimes. which is so funny because you're giving a perfect example of like what I've been talking about all along right we're so like socially conditioned to feel certain ways and things yeah. you know certain things because funny enough when you do say things in a you know in a meeting or something I'm like oh yeah he's just young you know so I do it to you <laughs> right, right, I do right. it to you as well so I think that's kind of funny totally and I and I I do the thing with the military too <laughs> I, I definitely had a moment when I first met you when I was like, oh, wow, she's actually, she's really cool. And she's like really chill in a lot of aspects and very fun. That's not what I expected oh, Exactly. At all. So maybe you and I both need to do a little bit better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm awful at that. Don't get me wrong. And I encounter that with my students for sure. Right. Like there are so many times where I have to like stop and be like, oh, yeah, no, these are these are people with feelings yes. and, you know, brains and not just, you know, children. Yes, children that have not um, experienced anything so, yet. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. So I think we all have a lot of work to do in that regard. Yes, we do. I'd love to hear 
if you have any sort of like favorite or valued piece of advice or a thing that you tell yourself or a, a piece of advice that you've received from from someone else that has kind of carried you like through your time as an educator or something you've just been thinking about lately that you would like pass on to someone else or something you repeatedly tell yourself about about teaching well I'll tell you the first time I um, right before I went into the classroom for the first time what I kept telling myself is no matter what you know more than they know <laughs> no matter what you know more than they know right. because it can be daunting I mean even at my age going into a classroom it can be daunting right because you are the subject matter expert you are the one who needs to know, you know? I mean, nothing like being put on the spot as an English teacher when they are reading and they don't know a word and they're like, Mrs. Fermo, what does this mean? You know, you're like, I don't know. I don't know what that word means either. Yeah. You know, and you're doing this like kind of song and dance trying to, you know, cover your tracks. Um, So I think that's always sort of gotten me through. Um, And, you know, um, I think we all suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome and, um, you know, just sort of wondering if somebody's going to figure out that we don't really we're not as good as we you know we appear or we don't know as much as you know as we said we knew totally and you and you mentioned that you experienced that on your first day too right so it's like i'm yeah circling back to this whole i you know theory of the imposter syndrome and i think you just have to have sort of faith in who you are and the experiences that, that you've had right i mean every i know this this sounds so cliche but everyone's experiences are unique to them and they make you, you know, they yeah. totally make you who you are. And so that's why you're being hired on to do your job is because of all the sort of uniqueness that you bring to the table. And just to have a little bit yeah. of faith in that and how important it is to be authentic. I think that's probably maybe my biggest um, piece of advice that kind of gets me through is that no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how much I don't, I, I may not fit in, um, I'm the best version of myself when I'm my authentic self. And I will not let, and maybe this is a product of my age, but I will not let anybody around me, and especially my students, make me somebody that I'm not. Meaning, and I will have that conversation with them often. I will say, I could be the teacher that, you know, that demands certain things. I could be the teacher who puts, you know, a lot of boundaries on you, but I I won't be that teacher. And I'm not going to make, let you force me to be that teacher because then I'm not, I'm inauthentic. And the authentic... Debbie is so much better than the inauthentic one. And so um, I think, yeah. And so I I do oftentimes reflect, like, is this my authentic self? You know, did I have an authentic day? Um, And I think it's really important, you know. I mean, that's sort of our differences is what makes things, you know, more fascinating than our likenesses, right? Yeah, that really resonates with me. Just this idea of of being true to like who you are and trying to balance that with ways in which you can grow and ways in which you do have to adapt to the new challenges of a particular class or a new school or a new grade or, or whatever. Um, but being able to do that while also acknowledging and identifying like these are the non-negotiables. These are the things that are not going to go right. away um, in terms of like who I am as a teacher and what I do. And I do those for a reason. And yeah, it is a matter of, of trusting yourself, which is, it's hard to right. do. Right. And I find that um, that's probably my, um, one of my biggest sort of issues with colleagues who will come to you, you know, you, something doesn't work in a classroom or you get frustrated with a class on a certain day and you'll have a colleague that will say, well, that never happens with me. And when that happens, I just do this or this always seems yeah. to work for me. So I'm not really sure why it's not working for you. And I just, I feel like that's a very <laughs> condescending 
you yeah. know, answer to anyone who's having trouble yeah. because what works for you is not going to work for me, right? And who I yeah, am in the classroom I is know. not. You're not being helpful right, right now. Right. I'm going to be really helpful. I'm going to tell you exactly how I do it and, you know, and, and how it works for me, you know. And I just think that that's not helpful, you know, as, as a colleague, that's not helpful. Yeah, that is very yeah. frustrating. <laughs> so in, in talking about this idea of, of being true to who you are and, and being authentic mm-hmm. to yourself, um, I have... I have a challenge okay. for you, um, if you if you choose to accept it. What I'd like you to do is pitch yourself as an educator, or capture your essence as an educator, and what sort of like what a classroom experience is like with you, um, to the best of your ability, in thirty seconds. Okay. Yeah, really, whatever comes to mind, uh, anything is totally fair game. Don't worry about how you know thorough it is or how intelligent it sounds. Um, I'm going to throw 30 seconds on the clock. Do you have any questions going into this? I have, No, I do not have any questions. I feel a little pressured, but um, I, I'll give it my best shot. I think you would be great. <laughs> you always say that. All right. Okay, so I'm going to count down in three, two, one, go. I feel like the way I am as an educator is authentic. I think that my students come in the classroom, they know that I care about them. They know I'm going to pick up if they are not 100%. And I think we have fun because I allow them to get off topic whenever they want to get off topic because I think talking about life is sometimes more valuable than talking about literature. Wow. You have five seconds to start. Oh, I did? Oh, okay. So I'm going to have you um, do that again. Uh, except this time, I want you to do it in 10 seconds. So the exact same seconds. thing, just in okay. 10 seconds. And unfortunately, though you had five seconds left, I can't tag that on to the 10 <laughs> seconds. You know, so you didn't just not is... tag it on. You took it away is what you did. I got penalized yeah, for being done early. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is one of the situations where you either either use it or, or lose it. I'm military. I'm like either I'm either on time or early all the time. Right. Always. <laughs> right. Um, so great. So so I have 10 seconds on the clock. Um, I'm going to count down in three, two, one, go. My classroom is a place of caring. If you come in uh, fully prepared to go for the day, you will leave feeling better than when you started. Great. Oh, that Perfect. was not great. I totally acknowledge that. I have not had to do this um, just yet, but I totally acknowledge that it is not an easy thing to do. So uh, this is very much a judgment, a judgment-free zone. Okay. So what I'd like you to do, lastly, is just capture your essence as an educator to the best of your abilities using just one single word. Do I have a second to think about it? Yeah, of course. You can have as many seconds as you need. Okay. Uh, Okay. I think the word I have is not very um, shiny. (laughs) That's okay. It doesn't have to be sexy. Yeah. Okay, I think, um, I, I would like to think that my teaching is fun. So that's my word, fun. That's awesome. That's I awesome. don't know if my students would agree, but at least that's my <laughs> right. perception, perception well, of the Well, you have fun, are. and that's what matters at the end of the day. Okay, very good. I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Debbie. Um, this has been really great. I've so appreciated having you right next to me, both both literally and figuratively speaking, uh, as we navigate our first year at a new school, which is a, 
a crazy time um, and can be a frustrating time in addition to being very exciting. So it's been great to have you uh, along the way, and I'm looking forward to continuing to teach with you. Uh, Right back at you. So thanks so much for having me. Of course. All right. Take care, Debbie. Okay. Bye. Thank you once again to Debbie for speaking with me. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is Unida Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.